0: The energy transition has to be inclusive, and we have to make sure that it works for all communities. And by having it work for all communities, communities can embrace it. And it's only through community engagement that we're going to be able to tackle the really tough problems ahead of us.
1: Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School. And I must say, I've had the pleasure of including in these podcast conversations over the past three years a significant number of truly outstanding academics, mainly economists and legal scholars, but also others, and individuals who have also served in important government positions. And today, given those criteria, this is no exception, because I'm joined today by James Stock, who is the Harold Hitchings Burbank Professor of Political Economy at Harvard, where he is also Harvard's inaugural vice provost for climate sustainability and the director of the new Salada Institute for Climate and Sustainability. And also, Jim served as a member of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, where he focused on macroeconomics as well as energy and environmental policy. Welcome, Jim. Rob, it's really a pleasure to be here. So before we talk about your research and your current thinking about environmental and climate policy and lots of other things, let's go
0: back to how you came to be where you are. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Minneapolis and I have always spent a lot of time in the North Woods, and that really developed from an early age a love of the outdoors and the environment.
1: So does that mean it was primary and high school up there?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then you go on from the North Woods out east to college at Yale. What did you study there?
0: Well, I was a physics major at uh, Yale, which was great fun, but um, I realized my senior year that— uh, Uh, I didn't want to spend my life working on machines in the basement of physics buildings as interesting as it was.
1: Although I must say there have been a number of leading economists who I've had conversations with in this podcast series, who also did their undergraduate degrees in physics. Uh, One of them, of course, our late colleague, Marty Weitzman. Yeah,
0: Marty was a wonderful economist.
1: You went on to graduate school. Was that right away after graduation from college?
0: Something that probably many of my colleagues don't really know about, uh, nor is there any reason they should. I worked for a year. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after Mm -hmm. deciding that I wasn't going to be a physicist. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I took a job at the last minute in an energy policy consulting firm, and I spent a year doing that. And I just uh, really fell in love with uh, the idea of bringing the tools that I had, the toolkits, and being able to bring them to bear on real-world problems. And at the time, in the late 70s, energy policy and energy price fluctuations and energy challenges and energy security were really a huge deal And it was uh, it was a great opportunity and very interesting. So I decided that I would go to graduate school because I uh, wanted to be an energy economist.
1: And so that took you out to the West Coast to University of California, Berkeley.
0: Yep. Uh, I went to the econ department at Berkeley. And
1: what was your dissertation topic and who was on your committee? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, uh, the committee included my chair was the great econometrician, Tom Rothenberg. George mm-hmm. Akerlof was actually on my committee, which is uh, very exciting also. My thesis was on, I, I at graduate school, although I started uh, out thinking I wanted to be an energy economist, I mm-hmm. got really interested in econometrics and econometric mm-hmm. methods. Mm-hmm. So I then uh, basically focused on that. And of of course, I've worked on econometric methods for the greater part of my career. My thesis was on a particular problem in nonlinear time series modeling having to do with uh, uh, time, time scale changes. And then you graduated
1: in 1983 and you joined the faculty at my
0: institution, although I wasn't on the faculty yet, uh, the Harvard Kennedy School. Absolutely. And that was, uh, that was a big shift, and it was exciting to come to Cambridge.
1: Now, from there, you went back to the West Coast uh, to Berkeley to join the faculty. Is that right?
0: Yep. I was on the faculty there for a year. I'd actually then, I'd also visited uh, the Hoover Institution. Uh, My wife uh, had a job out in the Bay Area at the time. So, and she had gone to graduate school. So uh, we were out there for a while, but then I came back to Cambridge.
1: That's right. Now stayed for a while, but in 2002, you moved to a different part of Cambridge from the Harvard Kennedy School professionally.
0: Yeah, I moved to, over to the economics department. Although I, in classic Harvard tradition, um, I have a, a 100% appointment at FAS and a 0% appointment at the Kennedy School, and 0% is more than not having an appointment.
1: Yes, that no, that's certainly true. And, I, and you actually spend a great deal of time around the Kennedy School buildings. Now, along the way, while you're at the economics department in 2013 to 2014, you went off to the council of economics as a member of the council. Um, That must've been a very significant change from what you'd experienced up until then.
0: It was, it was really an exciting opportunity. So I went down, uh, I was invited to go down and be a member of the council of economic advisors. And so I was really excited to have that opportunity. they were interested in having some help in economic forecasting and macro. And of course that was, you know, one of the things that I did. Um, I was interested in doing that, but then when I went down there, I, I, it became clear that one of the areas of real need that I was then able to get in my portfolio was energy and climate issues. Mm-hmm. And although I guess I should say most of my academic career, had been spent doing econometrics and econometric methods. I had mm-hmm. maintained ongoing interest in energy environment topics. And some of the earliest, one of my very earliest papers was on valuation of Superfund cleanup sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, and then, in, starting in the nineteen nineties, I'd spent some time with uh, Robert Kaufman and some other mm-hmm. co-authors looking at time series econometric methods as they're applied to climate data. And so I'd, I'd actually kind of gotten into the climate world uh, in, in maybe a science, science and statistics way. And so uh, I'd been paying attention to that world. So I felt I had at least had some entry point for thinking about uh, the energy climate issues when I was at the council.
1: In your time at the council, could you tell us what was – just pick one maybe really high point and maybe also a low point if you could mention one of your service there?
0: Well, I might duck duck the question on the low point. Okay. Uh, I spent a lot of time working on a variety of different problems in the Mm -hmm. environmental area. One of them was the Clean Power Plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them was renewable fuels. And probably I would say maybe not a high point, but a pivotal point in my Mm -hmm. career was I realized one morning I was walking into work uh, and I was thinking about the day ahead of me and I suddenly realized that what I was thinking about all the time was How we could use the tools of economics and policy to reduce tons of emissions. Mm-hmm. And all of us, and it just hit me that that was so much more gratifying and so much more important than doing all of the work that I'd done, doing the work I'd done on econometric methods. And now, while I'm really proud of that work and I think it's done important things, it, I really realized that focusing on real world emissions reductions and really doing the best we can to tackle the climate crisis was something that I found uh, super gratifying and really motivating and something I wanted to do for the rest of my career.
1: Indeed. I mean, um, I certainly thought of you before you went off to Washington as an econometrician and someone who focused on econometric methodologies, particularly time series work, applying it with uh, some of your co-authors to macroeconomic phenomenon. But you have come back since then, as an out-and-out energy and environmental economist.
0: Yeah. Well, when I got back, uh, certainly I wanted to continue working on a number of the challenges or a number of the issues, and maybe we'll talk about some of them that I had mm-hmm. because it you know, fed or developed some of the academic work in the area. But what I pretty much decided to do was, well, if I'm going to Really get into this field and switch fields in a serious way, I need to be an assistant professor, so I kind of did the assistant professor thing <laughs> for for three years, three or four years, and just wrote a whole bunch of papers on different challenges, different issues in in uh, you know mainly econometrics, but not solely econometrics, focusing on environmental economics, and especially climate issues
1: now what certainly validates your move into uh, environmental and climate issues is that recently. Harvard has established a new leadership position, vice provost for climate and sustainability, and then even more recently has established the Salada Institute for Climate Sustainability. You're the inaugural vice provost in this position, and you're also the first director of the Salada Institute. Can you say a word about why Harvard established this new position? And also, what's the mission
0: of this Salada Institute? Sure, I'd be really happy to it's maybe it's useful just to step back a bit so of course universities have been making massive contributions in the area of climate change you and i might think about energy economics and policy but but you know before that there's all the climate science mm-hmm. there's the health impacts uh, all of the other parts uh, that span across universities where scientists and researchers and scholars have been making really important contributions but you know, as important as that was, it's not as though that work has solved the climate problem. It's clarified it and it's clarified our challenges, but we have so much more work to do. And universities really need to step up. All institutions need to step up, but universities in particular need to step up. And so that Harvard realized that. Harvard decided okay, we're going to go uh, and really do the best we can to really um, make a difference in the real world of, of climate. And in, in, in that means reducing emissions. That means preparing for uh, the the inevitable worsening of climate crises and climate uh, disasters, adaptation, uh, and uh, and taking the steps that we need to take now. So, so that gets to the mission of the institute. The mission mm-hmm. of the institute is to harness the strengths and abilities and powers of Harvard University and its scholars and students to press forward viable solutions and practical solutions uh, in an impactful way in the real world.
1: So is it fair to say then that the Slada Institute is both sponsoring research, but also doing its best to make sure that that research then gets communicated to the policy world and or
0: is informed
1: by the policy world?
0: yes that 's that's absolutely right, so uh, we 're doing several things so one of the things is research and climate fundamentally once you get to an impactful enough area it has to span it does span all different areas it spans economics, mm-hmm. it spans the science, it spans health and spans business and so you need to have expertise drawing from across the different parts of the university and different fields to really be able to make progress. So one of the things we're doing is pulling together those faculty members who are interested in these areas in a way that they can then communicate. But a second thing we're doing is really focusing on that work being impactful. So that means the work itself shouldn't be implied. It should have a, a, a real world end in sight. And the third thing we're doing is we're then, through the Institute, providing the resources necessary to actually do the convenings, to have the impact, and to get in connection with real-world stakeholders in such a way that that we really are achieving this mission of driving forward progress on both mitigation and adaptation. And in
1: the process of that, uh, both in terms of the research and in terms of being impactful, in the policy world and the outside world, something that's really struck me about the Slade Institute is the degree to which you have already successfully bridged what sometimes at Harvard have been seen as barriers within the university between the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the professional schools or even between departments within the Faculty of Arts and Sciences.
0: You know in a, in a way, Harvard is a microcosm of academics, academia mm-hmm. uh, we have our own schools, we have our own departments, we have <laughs> so many silos. but at the same time, at least in our field, Rob, in the mm-hmm. field of climate and energy transition, people really feel like the reason they're working on this is not just to get another publication but because it's a problem that really matters in the real world and and everybody is really passionate about wanting to make a difference. They realize that they're going to make more of a difference if they work together across fields once you open up the space and the span of the of the topic at hand. So, yes, there's been a lot of pushing against standard silos, but it's been I, people have been remarkably open to that and remarkably recognizing that mm-hmm. this is uh, these are steps that we really need to take if we're going to make progress
1: you know something we've seen at harvard but that i all i would suspect as you just suggested that it's typical of other universities and colleges for that matter is increased attention from the student body, particularly from, I'm thinking of undergraduates in this case, to environmental and climate issues. I mean, I know of several situations at Harvard in which someone decided they wanted to launch a small seminar with eight students around a table, and then 35 or 40 students wanted to participate. You've probably seen this a lot.
0: Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I teach a freshman seminar, on climate policy and we have like all freshman seminars we have 12 seats but i have you know well over 100 applicants for that oh my
1: gosh exactly so let's uh go from harvard to the other place where you've spent a lot of time and that's washington dc and think about environmental and energy policies um what are some of your greatest concerns today about environmental and energy policy
0: Yeah, that's that's a really important question. I think any starting point has to say that we made huge progress over the past. Year the nation has made huge progress over the the over 2022 with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, Mm -hmm. often typically recalled referred to as the IRA. So this is a huge piece of legislation. It's really going to uh, set the stage for driving substantial emission reductions, especially in the power sector. And so that's fantastic. So so we all have to applaud that passage. There's also the bipartisan infrastructure legislation that has money for charging stations in it. Um, But I, I think at the same time, so as we applaud that, at the same time, we have to realize that where we are right now is taken a huge amount of work by many, many, many people Almost, respectively, a culmination of a decades worth of policy uh, engagement. Yet, the best projections for emission reductions in twenty forty relative to two thousand five really are only about forty percent. So, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not even a glass half full situation. Uh, We have um, Biden administration's target is fifty percent emission reductions. It doesn't look like we're on track to hit that. So. We've done this huge amount of work and we've passed this really important legislation, but we're only at 40% reduction. There is so much more work that needs to be done. And I think a big part of that work is actually figuring out what the right agenda is. What are the actions that we need to be taking at all levels, at the levels of corporations at the levels of the state and local government at the federal government level if we can get some get some progress there uh, and at the individual level what are the things that we need to be doing to really continue this progress and to drive emissions reductions onto the path that they need to get to now
1: no for years economists whenever you ask them about an environmental problem including climate change they would talk about pricing instruments immediately carbon pricing in the case of climate change, either carbon taxes or a CO2 cap-and-trade system. And the Obama administration, of course, tried that in the form of the Waxman-Markey legislation. A cap-and-trade system was part of it, but that never got a vote in the Senate. You brought up the Inflation Reduction Act, which is very important. The magnitude of it exceeds any previous uh, climate legislation, passed and signed by President U.S. history, but it, it, it doesn't rely on sticks. It doesn't rely on pricing mechanisms except for that methane fee. It relies on carrots or subsidies. I'd like to know what your reaction is to that, both in terms of policy, but also in terms of the thinking of economists and their own research.
0: This could make for a very long podcast. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Let me try to say just a few things. So mm-hmm. one of them has to do with uh, historically why is a carbon price important? And historically, we really haven't had good alternatives. Uh, you know, if you think back to 2005, at scale, what were the alternatives to um, coal and natural gas and mm-hmm. and there really weren't good alternatives to coal and natural gas in the power sector and electric vehicles were ridiculously expensive and and we just didn't have the technology so the best you could really hope for is getting people is developing the technologies that would be way down the road and then getting people to use less well you know having a higher price is going to get people to use less carbon price makes a ton of sense that's an efficient way to get people to use less Today, everything is totally different, uh, where we are looking at technologies, whether they're light-duty vehicles or solar or wind, uh, and now increasingly batteries, even grid storage batteries, uh, are really becoming at a much better cost point and are actually beating out their fossil fuel alternatives. So, so now the question is, like, what can we do to spur that? And at this point, subsidies can be very effective. So, mm-hmm. so point one is historically a subsidy approach hasn't been wouldn't, wasn't very effective. A carbon tax would have been effective. Now a subsidy approach is very effective. I guess point two, there's been some really important work I found uh, very influential in my thinking by Severn Borenstein and colleagues, Jim Bushnell uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, others. Meredith fowley has been involved in this work too. Uh, so I associate this mainly with uh, Berkeley um, that has been pointing out that um, electricity prices are actually uh, too high. And what are, what they mean by too high is that the cost, the price that consumers are paying for electricity is well above the marginal social cost of electricity, even if you include the social cost of carbon and the externality values. Mm-hmm. Well, what that means is that we really should be doing things that driving up electricity prices even further, they're already above the marginal social cost. So that doesn't mean there's no particular reason to drive them up further. If anything, we should be pulling them down. And then once you take into account count the fact that we need to electrify the light duty vehicle fleet. We need to electrify home heating. uh, So we really need to expand electricity use. Having cheaper electricity is going to help facilitate that. So I think there's pretty good pretty good evidence suggesting that uh, it, it, it really makes sense to be focusing on a subsidy approach now. And of course, subsidies aren't enough. You have to do other things mm-hmm. to deal with micro regulations and, uh, and citing concerns and so forth. But a subsidy approach, I think, is one that has a, makes a lot of sense economically at this point.
1: So that's interesting. So because of technological changes that have taken place, as well as certainly some politics yeah. Um, the fact that economists are now actually spending more time looking at alternatives to carbon pricing, what used to be called, I guess, certainly a second-best approach, um, makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, you could think of it as it's a second-best approach in like a very stylized model. But then once you mm-hmm. get into real-world complications, even a carbon price is not going to be necessarily first price best unless it's involved, you know, entails. Fixing other aspects of the tax system and so forth. So, um, I mean, I'm not I'm not a public finance theorist, but my reading of that literature is that there's you know the, 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 the welfare costs of moving to uh, from from a carbon price to uh, to say a subsidy program are really very small, and in some are in some dimensions actually uh, de- desirable.
1: Yeah, and we, we've seen that actually in the seminar series that you yeah. and I co-hosted at Harvard, we've seen that in papers in this academic year.
0: Yeah, I, I do want to stress one thing, which is you know we're talking about pricing, but pricing mm-hmm. is only dealing with one sort of externality, and there's lots and lots of other market failures yes. that need to be, to be attention. I pay attention to. A good example of that is in the charging stations. Uh, market where there's this real chicken and egg problem, multiple equilibrium problem, where you can have, you know, not many EVs and not many chargers or lots of EVs and lots of chargers and Mm -hmm. like, you know, which comes first, the charger or the EV. So uh, that's a perfect example of where a different type of policy altogether is needed, which is a, a big push on chargers. I would say that's a place where I would actually give our current federal policy not very high marks. There's like $5 billion in the IIJA. There's a tax credit in the IRA. I, mm-hmm. I think it's a medium push or maybe a modest push. We, we, I, My personal view and from all the modeling we've done is that we actually really need a big push on charging stations to really implement that mm-hmm. so that people have the comfort and the, the comfort level to buy an EV and know that they'll be able to charge it.
1: So, So let's turn from what we might think of as the efficiency and the cost-effectiveness concerns about climate policy to at least what economists would typically refer to as the distributional implications, there's increasing attention in the policy world. And I'd note also in the scholarly world to uh, two phrases, uh, environmental justice and just transition Um, frequently, but not necessarily in the context of climate change and climate change policy. What's your reaction to that increased attention?
0: Well, I think it's entirely appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. The environmental justice community has pointed out uh, something that you know uh, is is eminently true, which is that much of the economic development associated with fossil fuels and much of the worst impacts of fossil fuels have uh, been on communities of color and disadvantaged communities and disenfranchised mm-hmm. communities, and um, and that's something that not only morally is not not a way to go in the future, not something we can countenance, but just as a practical matter, it's it's not an effective way to to, to make the energy transition. The energy transition has to be inclusive and we have to make sure that it works for all communities. And by having it work for all communities, communities can embrace it. And it's only through community engagement that we're going to be able to tackle the really tough problems ahead of us, mm-hmm. like, like siting of photovoltaics and siting of wind and siting of offshore wind and, mm-hmm. and especially siting of transmission uh, lines. And, and so I think we have to have a much more inclusive process going forward than we've had in the past
1: you know earlier we were talking about students college students and something that we've certainly seen in the last several years is is quite striking at least to me and I th- i'd like to finish up with this and that is i'm referring to these youth movements of climate activism it's sometimes described as being greta thunberg but it's a lot more than one person it's it's students around the world young people around the world. We saw it in 2019 at the annual conference of the parties with the protests subsided with the pandemic to some degree, but it came back again, and we're seeing it again. And I'd like to know what your reaction is to these youth movements of
0: climate activism. Uh, They've been absolutely critical to the progress that we've seen in uh, in in policy and in general recognition of the need to do something. The, the, the climate activists, the youth climate activists have been uncompromising. They've been evidence-based. Uh, they've been morally on the right side. And that has forced uh, people of our generation to really step up their game. So, you know there are many of us who didn't need convincing but we needed to be pushed and there's others who needed to be convinced and and it's been incredibly powerful i mean they've they've played such an important role in the passage of the ira and in the development of the green new deal here in terms of u.s politics and they mm-hmm. played a really critical role internationally so mm-hmm. i think we we really owe them all uh, a real debt uh, a real debt of gratitude and i know they've made huge personal sacrifices one of the things that we all know is that this, this is something where everybody has to make a commitment for the long run and they really have to give everything that they can to be making progress and the youth activists have been you know making in tremendous personal sacrifices to drive forward progress and uh, we 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 really owe a lot Well,
1: that's an inspiring and a very good place to bring our conversation to a close. So thank you very much, Jim, for having taken time to engage
0: with me today. Well, thanks so much, Rob, for having me, and I enjoy listening to these podcasts very much.
1: Our guest today has been Jim Stock, the Harold Hitchings Burbank Professor of Political Economy at Harvard, where he is also the inaugural vice provost for climate and sustainability and the director of the new Salata Institute for Climate and Sustainability. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.keep.hks.harvard.edu.